Well, let's turn together this morning to Romans chapter number 6, and we'll continue our study of this uh, great chapter, as all the chapters of the Word of God are, of Romans chapter 6, and we're continuing to deal uh, with the reality of the change and the standing uh, that those that are in Christ have certainly experienced. Uh, we have worked our way to verse number 12, and for our context sake this morning, I want to begin in verse 12, and we're going to read down through verse 23. Romans chapter 6, beginning there in verse number 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness." I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Verse 14, Paul says, Sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. This is a strong affirmation of the initial question in which Paul presented to us in the beginning of this chapter when he was confronted with the reality that if sin continues and grace much more abounds, isn't the likely conclusion that we should just go on sinning. And of course, Paul put that to rest very quickly. Well, Paul's returning to that same thought again, and he is reaffirming the reality as we see a very similar wording that's being used here. But Paul, again, in verse 14, he says, for sin, it is not to have dominion over you. There is no, more, there's no truth that is more certain than the fact that sin should not and shall not and does not have dominion over believers. If you would, I'd also like for you to notice an expression that's found in verses 18 and 22, where Paul says in verse 18, being then made free from sin, 
ye became the servants of righteousness. Verse 22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. This expression, being made free from sin, the truth of it is, is believers are free from sin and free from the guilt of sin. Therefore, because of that fact, because of that truth, this power of sin shall no longer dominate you. It shall no longer rule over you. We have, in fact, as we've learned over the last few weeks, we've learned that we have, in fact, put on a new man, but yet there is still a remaining warfare that is going on with the old man. Ultimately, we know that the new man is going to win, certainly when Christ comes for his bride, or we are taken up into heaven to be with him. But notice in verse 14, we see that there is the use of the word for mentioned twice, and it breaks up this verse. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. This first four in verse 14 gives us the reason why believers should do all that they can, exert themselves to give themselves over to the service of God. They shall not fail. They shall not fail in this attempt because sin cannot have dominion, total dominion over the believer any longer. The next or the second four in that verse gives us the reason why sin shall not have dominion. So you see, Paul tells us here that we understand that we are, in fact, free from sin, but we also gloriously are free from the guilt of sin. He's going to do a comparison here between what the law taught, what the law showed us, and what grace teaches us, what grace shows us. But it is in fact true that we as servants of Christ should not only live in holiness, but we should live as those who have been made free from sin and free from the guilt of sin. Now look with me at verse 12 as Paul continues to unpack or unfold this truth. He says, let not sin, therefore... In other words, seeing this is the case, seeing that you are dead to sin, seeing that you have in fact been baptized into Christ, seeing that you have been planted together in the likeness of his death as we've been learning, we are called to obey and follow this exhortation. Let not sin therefore. Now, of course, by the word sin there, he means the corruption of our nature, our old nature. The same that we looked at last week that he called the old man the body of sin. There are remainders of sin, even in those who are regenerate. We have remaining corruption within us. That's that battle. And we've learned that we're supposed to be mortifying that. We're supposed to be moving away from that, putting to death that which used to have dominion over us. But remember, it will not be totally eradicate, eradicated until we get to glory, which means this is a lifelong battle. We're going to battle against the old man, all of our life. But Paul says you have the power within you to actually live unto God, to live under the service of God, to not live under the service of what used to be your master, which was sin. Now notice I mentioned either last week or the week before, I wanted you to make a mental note about the word reign because I said that word reign would become a very important word. 
not the rain which falls from the sky, but the word he uses in verse 14, uh, in this, or verse 12 rather, he says, let not sin therefore rain in your mortal body. Uh, Paul doesn't say that it's not going to reside there. Paul doesn't say that it's not going to be present, but he says, don't let it rain. Don't let it be the ruler. Don't let it be the master. Don't let it be which is what gives motion to your actions. It should not bear sway. It should not have dominion in you. It shouldn't have the upper hand. But rather, we should have our members yielded to Christ, which we'll learn here in a moment. Notice he says, not only should this not reign, he says, in your mortal body. The body throughout Scripture is referred to that mortal, that frail body. It's a figure of speech that is meant to point us to the whole man. Now, Paul makes mention here of the body because the parts and the members thereof are the usual instruments of sin. We commit sin with the instruments of our body. So it follows that in the next verse, we'll see this in verse 13, that he says, neither yield your members. Those members are a reference to the parts of the body. That ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Paul says you should not obey sin. The meaning does not just simply mean that the lusts that are alone in the body but we know that there are corruptions. There are things that we're going to encounter. But that which defiles a man comes from inside the man, Jesus himself said. It's not what goes in, it's what's already within him. But most all sin that man commits shows itself, manifests itself in the body or through the body. So then Paul mentions in verse 13, neither yield. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. Notice there's an emphasis on the word yield. Now, Paul, by the using the word members here, <clears throat> we not only understand that he's talking about the parts of the body as our hands, as our eyes, as our ears, but also the faculties of our soul, our understanding, our will, our affections. Uh, you can prevent your hand you can prevent your eyes, and in some cases, you can prevent your ears from being yielded to sin. But unless you do the same with your will and your affections and your understanding, it'll simply just be a putting off of outward things. Paul is dealing with something much deeper here. He's beginning to deal with the reality that whomever you yield to, whatever you yield to, is the clarifying mark or declaring mark of who you in fact are. He says, as those that are alive from the dead, verse 13, yield yourselves as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Uh, those that are alive from the dead are those who know the reason why we shouldn't serve sin, why we shouldn't serve the lust of our flesh, but they should be yielded, dedicated over to the service of God because we have been given spiritual life. We have been given the power and the ability to overcome this present evil world. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Our members, our hands, our eyes, our ears, our 
physical body, as well as our understanding, our will, and our affection, should be given over to the command of God for righteousness, not under the command of our old nature that still dwells within us. Paul in verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion. That word dominion, very similar to the word reign, only it goes one step further and it means control. Sin shall not have control over you, for you are not, you are not under the law. Now in Romans 6.12, this was more of an exhortation, but here this is a promise that sin will not reign in and over us if we are in fact in Christ Jesus. Now make no mistake about it. Sin will rebel in us. We will have moments where we sin. We will have moments when we do those things which are an abomination to God. Sin is, all sin is an abomination to God. But reign it shall not. Rebel, yes. Reign, no. We all still have rebellion in us. Sin is rebellion, but it should not reign in the regenerate. Sin, to the believer, has lost its absolute uncontrolled power. Its dominion, through the blood of Christ, its dominion has been taken away. Not hypothetically, but actually taken away. Sin does not have dominion. Now, what can we find from this? What can we use this for? We can find this as an encouragement to continue to fight to yield to God. Remember, we're not just to sit back and do nothing. We are to be actively restraining ourselves from yielding to sin. Not passively, actively. Actively determining whom will I yield to? The old man or the new man? Now Paul adds this reminder. He says, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul's adding this as for a reason of what he has said and what he's promised. He says, you're not under a legal dispensation, but you are under a gospel dispensation. Grace is often... Replace, not replaced, but used interchangeably with the gospel. Paul simply says here, you are not under the old, but you're under the new. Now, he doesn't mean that the law doesn't matter anymore. The law and grace do differ. The one, the law, condemns the sinner in guilt. Anyone who looks in the face of God's law can only come away with one conclusion. I'm guilty. No person who ever lived can look into God's law and say, the law does not make me guilty. We look into the face of the law and we say, I am guilty. So the law condemns the sinner in guilt. The other, grace, frees him, not only from sin, but from the guilt of sin. Paul says you can be sure that sin in the believer who knows of this grace will no longer have absolute uncontrolled power over you. 
You are not under the law, which the law does what? The law forbids sin. But knowing just the law does not give you power over the law. It doesn't give you, uh, just knowing the law doesn't give you the power to obey it or to keep it. What does the law require? The law alone requires perfect obedience. Which means the only way you can look into the face of the law and not be condemned guilty is if you obey it perfectly. But praise God, that's not where he left us. Because we do look into the law and we don't discard the law as believers today. The law still has its purpose. Paul referred to the law as being our schoolmaster. It is what drives us to the understanding that we do not have the strength to obey it. We do not have the strength to keep it. However, under the gospel or that covenant of grace we refer to it as, sin is still forbidden. Again, that goes right back to the fundamental question Paul was asking when they were saying, if, if grace much more abounds, can't we continue in sin? No, he's saying that grace still requires that ye sin not. In other words, just like if you look in the face of the law by itself, you're guilty, you can't keep it. It tells you what you are. We don't use grace as a means to say, okay, I'm not guilty anymore, so I can use it as a license to sin. As a matter of fact, I think what Paul is actually uh, suggesting here is that because you know grace, you ought to resist even harder. Not use the means of grace as a license, but as an encouragement to no longer yield. To sin. Sin is still forbidden under grace. But the sinner now is enabled to resist sin. And you're actually able to overcome sin in your life. Many people have simply given up and they've said, I cannot get victory over this sin. If you are in Christ, it's not that you cannot, you will not. Are you resisting unto blood, as the writer of Hebrews says? Are you resisting that sin? Are you taking every means necessary to remove that sin from your life? Oftentimes, we don't remove it and over, uh, overcome it or resist it because we're simply not yielding ourselves properly. Paul returns back to the fundamental question in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. No, by no means at all should this be your conclusion, he says. Though we're not under the curse of the law, no, though we're no longer under the guilt of the law, we are still under the law's direction and the law's discipline. So we as believers should never look at the law as something we don't ever have to be concern ourselves with anymore. No, we're still under its direction. We're still under the direction and the discipline of the moral law. Yes, we're not held to the ceremonial law, but we are. The moral law is still in effect for believers in our day and age. The gospel or grace does not allow for sin, I hope you remember this, 
any more than the law does. How much sin did the law allow for? None. How much sin does grace allow for? None. The difference is, if you're under grace and you sin, if you're in Christ, you're still free from the guilt and the penalty of it. But you're still required. Sin is not allowed just because you're under grace. That's where I see it. If we know the law require perfect obedience, we couldn't do it, we should still attempt to live our lives under grace as if we don't want to sin. So Paul is completely undoing, again, this whole argument that since grace does much more abound, then certainly I can live as I want to. Now Paul is being very careful here to prevent the abuse of the liberty we have in Christ. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, of Galatia in, in Galatians 5 verse 13, he says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Peter said in verse Peter 2 verse 16, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Grace should never be used and abused. Grace is not meant to be used to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Paul in verse 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. He puts it right where we are. He refutes the objections that have come, and he simply says here that whomever it is you yield to and who you obey, that's who you are the servant of. So if sin still has uncontrolled sway in your life, you are still a servant to sin. And by the letter of the law, you are still under the penalty of the law. Whomever ye serve is who you're the servant of. We're either the servants of unrighteousness or we're the servants of righteousness. But notice he uses the word obedience here. Or of obedience unto righteousness. Now notice he doesn't say obedience unto eternal life. Why does he not say that? Why does he not say obedience unto eternal life? Because though sin is the cause, don't miss this, the cause of eternal death, our obedience is not the cause of eternal life. Obedience is the evidence we possess eternal life. The reality is you and I cannot obey our way into glory but we sin our way into hell. Your obedience to the law is not what gained you eternal life. Christ's obedience did. And because Christ was obedient perfectly, fulfilled the law perfectly, never once sinning, we are in Him. That's what makes Romans 6.23 even more glorious. When we started the study of Romans 6, that verse is often used as a classic evangelism passage, and I'm not saying it can't be used. But for the believer who truly knows what the law declared about them, 
And what grace now declares? Romans 6.23 is one of the most beautiful verses for the believer because the believer knows what they once were, knows what their eternal destination was, and now knows what it is. And they know it was all a gift. Nothing that we did. Not our obedience, but His obedience. And Paul jumps right into that and he says in verse 17, but God be thanked that ye were Past tense, the servants of sin. But you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Paul says, God be thanked for this, that though you were once servants of sin. When were you a servant of sin? When you were unregenerate. When you were in your unconverted state. But he says, now you are freed from that bondage. You're free from that guilt. You have been set at liberty from the power and the dominion over sin. Free from sin and free from guilt. We're going to sing that hymn to close this time out this morning because it's a, it's a great reminder of what Paul is teaching here. Free from sin and free from the guilt of sin. Now, he does use the word obedience here. Now, what this is, is, is explaining to us, he said, the form of doctrine which was delivered you. You keep reading, you notice that this was not just our own obedience on our own, but he's, a talk, he's talking about the efficacy of the doctrine that's been put into the heart of believers. Doctrine is not just something that we know. Doctrine actually transforms us. You can be a great theologian and be on your way to hell. You can know all the doctrines. You can know all these things, but unless you know Christ through the repentance of your sin, all you have is head knowledge. But Paul says you have more than head knowledge because God be thanked you were the servants of sin, but you obeyed the doctrine that was delivered unto you. See, the gospel of grace doesn't just become a mantra that we put on a, on a postcard or we put on a screen. The doctrine of grace actually sets us free. It sets you free because it changes you. It changes your heart. It changes the very fashion of what you once loved. You don't love anymore. You start to think about sin the way God thinks about it. Not just as an error, not just as a mistake, not as just a miscalculation, but a transgression against a holy God. God hates sin, all forms of it. Your mind changes. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with open face beholding as in the glass the glory of the Lord, but are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. If the gospel of God's grace isn't changing you, you haven't experienced God's grace. If you have a profession of faith and you haven't changed, your heart hasn't been fashioned, your hatred towards sin has not increased, it's fair to ask yourself the question, am I truly in the Lord Jesus Christ? 
You can't be saved by grace and have a love and a desire to yield yourself to sin the way you once did. You want to be yielded to God, not just your hands and your eyes and your ears, but your very will, your very affection, your very understanding. You don't want to be a servant to sin anymore. You want to be a servant to righteousness. The misuse and abuse of grace would simply say, I've been saved by grace, but I can continue in the sin that once had uncontrolled sway over me. You've not been saved by grace. Nobody saved by grace lives that way. Nobody. Grace changes. I love what James says in James 1.21. He talks about the Word and he calls it the engrafted Word. You see, the Word of God not only turns the heart, changes our life, but it converts the hearer into the very same nature. We are being sanctified. We are being made more and more like Christ. Paul then uses that expression we'll look at twice. Being then made free from sin. Ye become, became the servants of righteousness. To be free from sin means you are free from the service of it. You've received freedom from the evil, unrelenting master, the law. The law declares you guilty as charged. No conditions, no exceptions, guilty as charged. You are guilty of what the law says about you. You're free from that. And as a result, you have now, because you're free from sin, you have now given yourself to a better service and become a servant of a great master. You now serve righteousness. Paul says something peculiar here in verse 19. I speak after the manner of men. And he simply means by that, and you've heard me use this expression from time to time. He's simply saying that, and he says, I'm speaking in familiar human terms, is what this means. I'm accommodating myself to your understanding. Now, it seems at the outset that he might be showing a little bit of spiritual pride, but I don't think that's what Paul's doing at all. He does know that there is some weakness in their understanding. He does understand that there is still some struggle with what he's speaking about. And he says, well, I'm going to use, and I've been using familiar illustrations of the pictures of service and freedom, imprisonment, and not being imprisoned. Being in chains and not being in chains. He's using these things not because when you're in guilty of the law that you're actually placed in a prison cell. But he's using familiar human illustrations that we might understand the picture he's trying to paint before us. For as ye have yielded, in other words, so as Paul says, I speak in the manner of men, for as ye have yielded your members... Our eyes, our ears, our bodies, our will, our affection, our understanding. As you have yielded your member servants to uncleanness 
and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now, Paul's talking in Ken what once was and now is. He said, in the same manner, because of the infirmity of your flesh, you yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, or sin upon sin. But now, yield yourselves members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. Here's what he's saying. The very same way in which you added sin unto sin in your unregenerate state, I want you to be as diligent and as careful now to obey God as how careful and diligent you were to obey and serve sin before you were saved. Attack it with the same diligence. You know, the unregenerate looks for ways to sin. In the very same manner that you added sin upon sin, yield yourself unto God with that same diligence. Uncleanness refers to any fleshly lust, the things that defile you, iniquity unto iniquity, adding one sin to another. He uses these words about the service of sin and about the service of God. Wicked, unregenerate men take great deal of time finding ways to sin. Oh, that we would take the same manner to find ways to diligently live unto righteousness. Verse 20, for when you were the servants of sin, notice this, you were free from righteousness. When you served sin, you knew that God and righteousness had no small part of your service. God was not in it at all. But why now? Why should sin have any of your time? Why should sin have any of your service? I'm afraid we've gotten into a day and age when we have started to allow certain sins. But Paul wants to know why. If you've been freed from sin and free from the guilt of sin, why would you give sin an ounce of your time? Why would you give it a millisecond of your service? Why would you yield your body for a single moment to that which was only going to bring you one result? Eternal death. Why would you serve it at all? Sin should have none of us. Why should we not now abstain as strictly from sin as we did before we were converted from everything that was good. Paul continues to drive this peg in, if you will. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. You were free from righteousness. Verse 21, what fruit had ye then? in those things whereof ye are now ashamed. Paul is actually putting this very practical as we bring this chapter to a close. He says, what's the fruit that was produced by the uncontrolled dominion that sin had over you? What did it produce fruit-wise? He gives the answer. For the end of those things is death. The things you are now ashamed of 
the things that once ruled you and guided you and controlled you. He says, you know what all those things brought you even in the times when they were pleasurable to you because sin is pleasurable for a season? Ultimately, what did it bring you? Death. What will sin bring you today if you continue to yield yourselves to sin? Death. If you sit here today as an unregenerate person and you continue to be yielded unto sin and yielded unto self and your own righteousness, without Jesus Christ, you'll die in your sin. But God be thanked that there's an open door. That you can call upon the Lord Jesus Christ at this moment and repent of your sins and believe that Jesus Christ will save you. And it's not a matter of will he do it, might he do it, he will do it. He'll not save you with a condition. He'll save you to the uttermost. And you will be free from guilt and free from sin. Oh, now the battle's just starting. Every believer in this room knows that battle against sin is very, very real. You've battled sin this morning. You've battled against the old man today trying to convince you of something going to bring more pleasure to you than even something as simple as gathering with the saints on the Lord's day. Something tried to get your attention today. Oh, you say, no, it was an advertisement or it was something I saw. No, it was that old man still alive and kicking, still telling you, you know what? Wasn't life so much better when you were the servant of unrighteousness? Remember all the fun we had when you were yielded to sin? Your old man will do that to you. And yet, whomever you yield your members to is who is your master. What fruit did it bring? Sin, although at the moment brought you satisfaction... Sin at the moment brought you some sort of pleasure. But what did it ultimately bring now when you look back on it? Sin brought nothing but shame and sorrow and it follows you. How does our sin follow us? Now, should we dwell on our former sins? No. You shouldn't be dwelling on your former sins and you shouldn't be allowing the old nature and even the devil himself to convince you, hey, do you know what you did 20 years ago? You're fully aware of what you did 20 years ago. That's part of the remembrance of your sins that even though we've been cleansed and washed, there's still a remembrance of that sin. And the remembrance of that sin and what it brought to you and I ought to drive us to our knees in repentance and our thanksgiving to God and say, thank you for delivering me from what that brought unto me. The only wage of sin, and that's why verse 23 and verse 22 are so important, the only wage that sin brings is eternal death. Sin never brings eternal life with Christ. If we're left in ourselves the motions and the actions of our depraved nature, the only thing our life will bring at the end of it is eternal death. 
But praise God for his pardoning grace and mercy that prevented you and I who are in Christ from being cast off forever. The certain end of every sinner who dies in their sins is the same. Sadly, they will spend an eternity separated from all that is godly. But Paul again, verse 22, but being made free from sin, you became the servants of God. You've been set apart from the liberty, from the service of sin. You've been admitted into the family of God. There is a difference now. And as you grow and you become a servant of God, you increase in this grace, you increase in holiness, you increase in righteous living, and you see the fruit of being in Christ. And Paul ends with that great verse with another four. For the wages of sin is death. When you put all of these things together, you can easily see which master is the best to serve and to obey. The wages of sin, they'll pay you. Someone has said, sin doesn't pay. Sin actually pays. You know what its payment is? Death. That's what it pays you. It pays you with death. You'll get paid. Sin does pay. But the reward that God freely bestows upon you through His grace is life. Eternal life. Interestingly, the word wages there signifies not just money, but it signifies victuals, provisions. The Romans of old would pay their soldiers with various provisions and victuals. Sometimes that would include food. It would include supplies. It was a payment for their service. Later, they gave them money. But it was used to signify any reward whatsoever. What is the reward of sin? The payment? Death. Not just temporally, but more specifically eternal death. See, the reality for everyone in this room is we're all going to die. Believers and unbelievers alike, we all have one event that's common unto all, death. So you could sit here today and say, I'm an unbeliever. I'm the only one going to physically die. No, we're all going to physically die because of sin. But the difference is now that there is a gift of God. And that's what Paul says is eternal life. Eternal life is not the wages of our righteousness, but it is the gracious free gift of God. It's a gift, why? To show us that we do not attain our eternal life by our own merits, our own works, or our worthiness, but by the gift or grace of God. Which Paul adds just for good measure to be sure we understand through Jesus Christ our Lord. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ and His righteousness and not the merit of our good works. May the Lord help us understand these truths.